0: toward becoming a fully committed follower of Jesus Christ. Enjoy. You know, so anyway, thank you, Jim. You know, it is amazing what we can do now in this day and age with photo filters. So, you know, I I was talking with a graphic design guy, this was like years ago, this was like 15 years ago, and he said, Any picture you see, like, in a magazine or in print or whatever, he he said, like, it's never, like, actually real. Like, it's always retouched. I'm like, man, that's sad. Like, nothing we're seeing is, like, really, like, what nature looks like or what people look like. And, you know, so here we go. I mean, you can, like, make yourself look however you want, you know, for your social media feed. Um, Maybe some of you have seen the commercial that I saw that it's as simple as having your, your, on your own phone. Like, it's amazing what you can do on your own phone. Magic eraser on on some of these phones. This this is pretty amazing. Like, you take a picture and you just want to get rid of those people in the background. Bam, they're gone, like, do you sometimes? Sometimes I wish I had one of those. Like, in life, you know, you could just like erase people, just temporarily, you know, not 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 permanently or, or anything. Watch, right? But oh, and absolutely, nobody in this room, nobody watching online, you know, no, absolutely. So anyway, amazing what we can do with with photo filters. I want to confess a tension that I feel as a, as a pastor, as someone who wants people to love God, to pursue God, to trust God. There's a tension, I feel, to sometimes try to filter, put a filter on on God and what you're gonna see and experience of God. Whenever I come to a passage in scripture and God is doing something that is hard to understand, hard to explain, maybe seems a little bit unfair, I I feel this tension of like, I kinda kinda just wanna filter that. I I wanna downplay that, because I want God to look as attractive as as possible to, to you guys. And so I've been convicted this week, and specifically I've been convicted at other times, but I've been convicted as I'm studying this passage, that that is not my job. It's not my job to filter God, not my job to airbrush not, not my job to try to make God look as, as good as he can. What my, what my job is, is to, to, to study and to present, to lead us in increasing our knowledge of, of God. And so whether what we see here is attractive to us, whether it is sometimes confusing, to us, whether it's sometimes downright disturbing to us, we we do not honor God when we worship an airbrushed photoshopped version of God. We, we honor God when we see all that there is to see of Him, and we say, I choose to trust, and I choose to worship. And so that's what we're gonna pursue as we look into some tough, tough verses here this morning. So if you would turn with me to Romans chapter 11. If you don't have a Bible with you, uh, you guys at home look it up on, your, on, on a device that you have or those of you who are in the room, there's a Bible near you on the seat and Romans 11 is on page 1048. We, if you're new with us, We are studying this year, we started in January, we're studying the whole way through the book of Romans. And as we start this morning, I wanna give just kinda some big picture handles on this study that will kinda help bring us up to speed to to where we are. First of all, if we we break up the the book as we have studied it to this point, we see that the the book starts with some, some universal perspective. So chapters one through three, look at universal condemnation, actually. It's it's Paul making a case that all of mankind has fallen short of God's standards, of God's perfect conditions that he wants us to, to live by. And so the first three chapters kind of look at this global, universal perspective. Then when we get to chapters four through eight, it starts to become personal, and what we realize is that Jesus Christ has come to live the perfect life that we, none of us, could live, so that he could have a perfect record that God in his grace would then transfer to us, he would credit to our account the perfect record that Jesus actually achieved. And so then, so chapters four through eight is that that grace is applied to us personally. We experience it personally. So we go from a a universal kind of global perspective to a personal perspective. Now when we get to Romans 9 through 11, it becomes universal again. Paul is stepping back and he's looking at the big picture of salvation history. And so if we can zoom in then on chapters 9 through 11, I want to just give you, when when I was in seminary, they, they taught us you should like look at each chapter and give each chapter kind of a, a theme, kind of capture what's, what's the theme of the whole chapter. So this is my take on the themes of Romans 9, 10, 11. Romans 9 would be the tragedy of Israel's rejection of grace. So remember that, that Paul is zooming in, he's, he's talking about the response of his kinsmen, his people, Israel, and he starts chapter nine with this huge lament this grief, like he says, if I could give up my own salvation, my own place in in God's favor, if I could give that up for the sake of my people, I I would do it. That's how grieved he was over the rejection of Israel for for God's grace. So so Romans 9 is about the tragedy of that. Romans 10 explores the substance of Israel's rejection of grace. What, What is it actually that, the Jewish people are rejecting. And now we get to Romans 11, and the theme is the end of Israel's rejection of grace. And I mean that word end in two different senses. One is the, the end result. So what happens as a result of Israel's rejection of grace? We're gonna see that today. And then the conclusion of Israel's rejection of grace. There's gonna come a day when that turns around. We're actually gonna see that today as well. So that's an overview here. The the passage that we look at today um, gives us a lot of insight into God's master plan of salvation history that spans from from the beginning of time all the way down to today and then into the, the future into eternity, and the nation of Israel plays a key role in that master plan. So God chose a man named Abraham. We we could even say that God elected a man named, named Abraham to start a nation that God intended to be a tangible representation on earth of what it looks like for a people to live under God's rule under God's favor, to, to relate to him. So they, God wanted them to be this tangible model and to be a blessing to the rest of mankind. So they're not just keeping it to themselves, but actually they're here to be a light so that the rest of the peoples of the world can, can see this is how we should live too. So the calling of Abraham is recorded in Genesis 12. God says, I will make of you, Abram at that time, a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. So I'll bless you, make your name great, not so that you can just enjoy all the blessings, but so that you can be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And so as we trace the the history of Israel through the scriptures, there are a lot of mountains and valleys. There are times where they get it right. There are times where they they get it wrong, which I'll just pause to to point out, that very fact alone really points to the, the inspiration and the validity of our scriptures that our scriptures were written by God and not by human beings. Because when, when human beings write down their history, especially in, in ancient times, if you read ancient history, if you're writing down the history of your own people, you're writing the highlights. I mean, it's looking like your Facebook reel. You know, It's like all the, the good stuff that is happening. And that is not at all what we see in, in the, the Hebrew scriptures. We're seeing the good, the bad, and the very, very ugly which points us to the fact that it it must be true because if they were writing it themselves, they probably would not have included all of that ugly stuff. So there are periods of obedience. I know this is really, really small. Hopefully you can at least make out the gist of what's going on here. There, There are highlights, periods of obedience, followed always by periods of idolatry, So there are periods where they're being obedient to the one true God, as he has called them to be, and then it's always followed by periods of of wandering and worshiping false gods, substitute gods. And so that that goes on for centuries and centuries, and it finally culminates in exile. So the, the promised land that God brought his people to Um, Eventually, he exiles them. He sends them, he scatters them all the way. Well, he takes them to to foreign lands, and then he scatters them. And by the time we get to Paul, as he's writing Romans, they have come back, a remnant has come back, but their their land is very truncated from what it originally was. It's It's a very small piece of what they originally had, and they are under Roman occupation. So into that setting, God sends his, his final blessing, his ultimate blessing of God himself coming in the person of Jesus Christ as Messiah. And what do what does the nation of Israel do but reject him? And so what happens then is the gospel begins to then spread rapidly to the other nations around. God starts, working with other nations, now that his people have ultimately rejected them. So with that backdrop, let's read chapter 11, starting at verse one. Paul says, I ask then, has God rejected his people? Because it kinda sounds like it, it kinda seems like it, it kinda seems like he's moved on from them and they've kinda gotten on his last nerve. Has God rejected his people? By no means. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? And this is Elijah's words, uh, verse three. Lord, they've killed your prophets, they have demolished your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself seven thousand men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So Paul here is recalling Elijah, who some of you know was a prophet during the reign of Ahab, and that was one. That was a period of one of the lowest points of Israel's history. Israel had gone like wholesale into. The, the worship of Baal, a, a false god. They were being led by Ahab and Jezebel into this idolatry, the, the king uh, and, and his wife. And so some of you will remember a scene featuring Elijah when he challenges the prophets of Baal to a showdown on Mount Carmel. And so they set up this elaborate setting here. They have have two altars, one for Baal, one for Yahweh, the the true God. And the prophets of Baal spend all morning calling on their God to to answer and to show himself. And so nothing happens. And so then Elijah does this really dramatic thing where he, you know, they, they put the, the the bull on the altar, and they pour water all over it. They make it, like, really difficult. And then then God's like, man, no problem, zap. And he zaps the sacrifice. He burns up the stones and, and everything. And God, the true God, demonstrates his reality, his power in front of the whole nation. And so there's this huge showdown. And on the heels of that is when Elijah says this. I mean, Elijah, in doing that, in calling this showdown, he is confronting idolatry, which we will remember if we, if you've been here from from the beginning. In Romans chapter one, Paul identifies idolatry as the foundational sin. That is the core sin. It's worse than any other sin. We see all kinds of sins demonstrated in our world today: murders, rapes, uh, greed, just all kinds of. Um, deprivation going on, but Paul says, at the core of all of it is the substitution of a false god for the true God. He says, you're gonna worship somebody and you're either gonna worship the true God or you're gonna worship a false god. So Elijah was confronting that and after this huge showdown, Elijah sank into a depression which happens sometimes after a spiritual high. So be on guard for that in your own life when you have a a spiritual mountaintop experience. Sometimes a spiritual low comes after that. And Elijah sank into this depression and he believed that he was the only God-fearing person left in the whole nation. That's what he says. He's lost hope in verse three. Lord, they've killed your prophets, they've demolished your altars, and I alone am left and they seek my life. But God corrects him. God says, I have preserved a remnant. In verse four, God's reply to him is, I've kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Now that's not a lot in a a nation of millions of, of people. That's not a lot, but that is God's pattern, is to preserve a remnant. And Paul says the same is true even today. God is preserving a remnant in verse five. So too, at the present time, and Paul is writing in the first century, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. All right, let me pause, go back to, to verses five and six here for, for a moment. Is, Israel's problem here is that they were going after the right goal, which is righteousness, to be right with God, in the wrong way. They were pursuing it by works or by faith. That's what verse six says. Um, it is, if, if it's by grace, it's no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. We, we know that Israel was going after God's favor and God's righteousness by works. We saw that back at the end of chapter nine. If you can flip back to that, it, it, chapter nine, verse 31, it says that Israel pursued a law that would lead to righteousness They did not succeed in reaching that law, why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone. And we saw that that stumbling stone is Jesus Christ. we, We talked about, a few weeks ago, how hard it is for the Jewish people to shift from a focus on the Torah and the law as their connection point with God, and to now see that the path to God is through a person. It's through this person, this Messiah named Jesus, who says, I am the way and the truth and the life. That's a really, really hard shift to make. It's a hard shift to make to say, to go from a performance-oriented mentality it says, I have to do it myself and God's giving me this law and I need to follow it to the best of my ability to saying, this is not the path anymore. Now now my path is to fully and totally put my trust in a person who came, fulfilled that law perfectly in his life and now is willing to credit his, his account to, to my account, his perfect record to my account. That's a hard shift to make, but that is the shift that Paul keeps calling us to over and over again. He called us to it back all the way in chapter one with our theme verse, which I don't have to put on the screen today, so that I don't have that to help you, but I'm sure you don't need help, those of you who have been here. So you, you can help me fill in the blanks as I pause here. The one who by faith is right. righteous shall live. Right, good, good. The one who by faith is righteous, shall live. The path to life in this world and eternal life with God is is not through performance. It's not through works, it's through words. It's through the words that God has given us, the word of Christ, the, the gospel about what he has done. And so, that the the Jewish people by and large have missed that. Yet there's a, a remnant for them. So most of them have missed it. Verse 7. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear, down to this very day. So, they have been hardened, verse seven. That, that word hardened is really the idea, it comes from the, the Greek word for a callous. If you get a callus on your foot where it's, it's hard, it's, you know, you can't kinda scrape through it. It's, and, and so here we are encountering one of these hard truths about God that in in my weakness and my frailty, I would love to to filter out because I don't totally get it. In some way that Paul does not fully explain or justify, God plays a role in hardening hearts against Christ. That's what it says in verse eight. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor. He gave them eyes that would not see in ears that would not hear. So we've encountered this before in Romans. We've encountered election before, where God chooses the younger brother over the older brother, even though that doesn't make logical sense, doesn't seem fair, doesn't go with culture. And uh, but, but it's one thing to favor one person over another. It's another whole thing to, to harden someone's heart. And we saw that as well with, with Pharaoh. We saw that God hardens Pharaoh's heart. And here it says that he hardens the heart of his people. So I'm just gonna tell you, I, I'm not able to make this sound fair. I, I'm not able to fully explain that. That's, and that's not my job. That's what God has given me peace with. But here's what I can say that this seemingly negative reality God uses to bring about a good outcome. Okay, so go to verse 11. Paul says, So so I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. So the, the, God's people, the Jewish people, were presented with the gospel. Jesus came, lived among them, died, rose again. They were presented with the gospel, but they rejected it. So now the gospel then goes to non-Jewish people, to the Gentiles. And what God ultimately wants to do is bring that full circle because God wants the Jewish people to look at Gentiles who are coming into close relationship and fellowship with God, and, and he wants them to be jealous. He wants them to say, I want that kind of close relationship with God. I want those blessings too. So what we see here is that the master is working out a master plan of grace. Okay, we we don't always understand all the ins and outs. and, And quite honestly, sometimes we might look at some of these details and say, this doesn't totally seem fair and how does God operate this way? But what we can say as we step back is the master is working out. He has a master plan and it is a gracious plan because none of us really deserves kindness and forgiveness at all. I mean, sometimes we we have a hard time understanding how it's all working out, but we trust that God is at work. We have a situation like this in, in my family right now. One, one of my kids is, is running up against obstacles in the pursuit of their career, and there have been Many conversations and prayers of just saying, God, what what are you up to? And God, why does this have to be so hard? And Sherry and I, as as parents who are you know a little further down the road, and we've seen God work in hard ways in our lives, and we see it in Scripture. We're we're trying to encourage with with the words of just saying, you know we can't always understand or explain exactly what God is doing, the details of what he's doing, but we believe that in the long run, he has good plans for you that he is working out. I I remind my kids often of one of my favorite quotes from Philip Yancey where he says, faith is believing in advance what only makes sense in reverse. So when we look back, we will, sometimes, not always, often, we will see how God was at work in, in those details. And, and faith is saying in advance, God, I trust your, your heart, I trust your character enough that even though I don't, I don't understand the details of what's going on right now, I, I believe you are good, and some, somehow you're working this out for good. So that's, that's a very small scale of the master working out a master plan of grace. What we have here in Romans 11 is is that on an epic scale. So as we talk about election, as we talk about the spreading of the gospel to Gentiles, let let me just point us to God examples, real life examples of God working that out in the book of Acts. So in the book of Acts, we see God, for example, electing people, we see God electing Paul. We haven't really talked about that very much, but if you know the story of Paul, you know that Paul himself, at the time, his name was Saul, he was vehemently coming against the gospel, coming against followers of Jesus, coming against this whole message of Jesus and saying, this is a total distraction, from the true God and how he wants us to approach him. And so he was, he was snatching people out of their homes. He was putting them in prison. He was opposing the church. And one day, God intervened dramatically in his life, knocked him literally to the ground and, and said, I'm calling you now to promote this gospel that you have been coming against. And, and so we would have to call that election. I mean, Paul was not trying to follow Jesus at all. God intervened in his life and called him. So then, as we continue through the book of Acts, we see scene after scene after scene where Paul himself and his comrades are, are bringing this message of the gospel first to the Jewish people as they would go into cities where the gospel has been scattered, and they would, they would bring this message of Jesus, but they would be rejected. Well, we'll look at one example here from Acts 13. We'll put this up on the screen. So the next Sabbath, it says, almost the whole city, and this is the city of Antioch, gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And so just as Paul had been opposing the gospel before, now he is being opposed. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly saying, it was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. So here we see a, a, a real life example of exactly what Paul is describing in Acts 11. He's talking about the the Jewish people being hardened towards the message, and so now it gets to move on to the Gentiles and go broader and wider, and then it ends with election again. As many as were appointed to eternal life believed. There is this pattern that we observe in God's election. So we we see God electing the younger brother over the older brother over and over and over again. It starts with Abel, all the way back to Abel, the younger brother in in Genesis chapter three, and God accepted Abel's sacrifice, but not Cain's. Cain, the, the older brother. And then we we can fast forward to Isaac. We've talked about this in the context of, of Romans. Isaac, the younger brother, was favored and he was made the line of promise over and above Ishmael, the older brother. Then we get to Jacob. Jacob was chosen over his twin, Esau, even though Esau was born first and was the first in line for the birthright, all of that got shifted to Jacob, and then we can go beyond that. We haven't talked about Joseph, but Jacob has 12 sons, and Joseph is younger. Uh, he's almost the youngest. Benjamin is the youngest, but he, Joseph is younger than his 10 older brothers who he goes out in the field and brings back a bad you know, report about them and on and on, and they all sell him into slavery, and yet Joseph ends up being the one who is is the one who is favored and, and is part of God's line of promise. And then, um, N.T. Wright points this out. I'm indebted to him for pointing this out. We, we look at the Jesus' story of the prodigal son. So, if you're familiar with that, that parable, the younger son runs off, he, he asks his father for the inheritance and he runs off and he squanders it. And when he comes back, the father welcomes him With open arms. The older son, meanwhile, has been there working, slaving in his words for for his father, following all the rules, doing all the works. And and the father says, I have to celebrate this younger son. And NT Wright points out that in, in many ways, that story, that parable that Jesus told, really symbolizes the Jews and the Gentiles. So the, the Jewish people are the older brother. They were the firstborn. They were the first ones to come into to relationship with God. And they're pursuing their relationship with God by works. I mean, if, if, if you go back and read the parable in Luke 15, there, there's not much warm fuzzy going on there. I mean, they, the younger son is all about just, look, I've earned your favor. You should be treating me better. And the younger son comes back, he has nothing to bring. And, and then he ends up being just grateful that he's welcomed back into the family and favored. Meanwhile, the older brother's saying, this, this shouldn't be happening. So the, the younger son again favored over the, the older brother and the older brother ends up distant. Like that, that parable ends without really a conclusion. Like we don't ever really see how the Jewish people, how that older brother is going to respond to the father and Jesus is leaving it open-ended intentionally. And and like, how are you gonna respond? How are you gonna respond to me? So in that parable, and as we see the history of the Jewish people, the, the trajectory is rejection. Rejection of God's grace and the gospel that he provides, but it will not be that way indefinitely. So read verse 12. Now, if their trespass, talking about the Jewish people, if the Jewish people's trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure to to believe, to embrace the gospel, means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? So the Greek there, some of you have a, a footnote for full inclusion, the Greek there is just the word fullness. How much more will their fullness mean? There's a glimpse here that there is a much more positive response to come that one day there's gonna be a full inclusion of the Jewish people in, among God's believing followers. So verse 13, uh, Paul says, Now I'm speaking to you Gentiles. Inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them, for if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? So what's going on here in verse 15 is that he, he's, he's saying that one day, he's saying right now we're in a, a period of rejection, uh, the, the re, which rejection means the removal of association with God. Like when you're rejected from something, You're you're no longer in association with them. So he says, if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance, or or we could say the, the acceptance into association with God, the restoration of their association with God, what's that gonna mean but life from the dead? I mean, there's an indication here that the Jewish response to Jesus as the Messiah is going to turn around. There's gonna come a day. And so verse 15 says, the result of that will be life from the dead. So interpreters interpret that phrase in a couple of different ways. Could mean uh, the end of the age, so life from the dead at the end of, of time, when we go to live with God eternally, other people look at that and say, well, it means, it's talking about just spiritual regeneration today, that, that the result of, the ultimate result of Israel's rejection means that Gentiles can be spiritually regenerated today. Either way, so either way you interpret it, that, there's a positive outcome happening here from the tragic refusal of some to trust in Christ. So the master is working out a master plan of grace. Maybe maybe you remember the words that were spoken by younger brother Joseph to his older brothers in Genesis 50. He said, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. God is always, always working out this master plan. We don't always understand the details of it. Joseph certainly didn't understand the details of it when he was in a pit and when he was sold into slavery and yet God is orchestrating and working. And so what what can we take away from all of this? When we struggle to understand what God is doing, when, he, when what he's doing seems confusing, unfair, disturbing, inefficient, here's what we can do. We can trust in what God has done in our favor that is unfair. Because God's mercy and grace to every one of us and everyone who has embraced the gospel of Christ, that's not fair. I mean, fair is we, we sin, we fall short of God's standard, and so we pay for that. We, we pay for that by separation from God. The unfair part is that Jesus paid that price for us I love what F.F. F. Bruce says. He says, God is not answerable to man for what he does. Yet he can be relied upon to act in consistency with his character, which has been disclosed supremely in Christ. With such a God to trust, why should any of his people question his ways? Um, there's something that God has been impressing on me lately, and it's this Simple idea, but it's really profound to me. Is that Jesus is my my older brother? Do you ever have I I hope that you have experiences where God impresses something on you? It's something that you've you've read, and it's just like you know, he just like snatches this thing and just like is like drilling it into you. It's like you need that personally. That's what he's been drilling into me. And it comes from that concept comes from Romans 8 29, which we looked at a few weeks ago, for those whom God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn. Jesus might be the firstborn among many brothers. So I take, personally, great comfort from the fact of having an older brother who's strong. Some of you have had this experience of having an older brother who's strong and who uses that strength. They're bigger than you. They they use that strength for, for good, I mean, some of you probably had older brothers that used that strength for not so good, um, to pound on you. But if you have an older brother that uses that to protect you, to be supportive, to be kind to you. Now, now Jesus is many, many things for, for me, okay? So this is not exclusive. Jesus is my king, and so I bow to him, I, I worship him. But it's comforting to me to know that Jesus is my older brother, and as we are talking about today god's pattern of choosing the the younger brother at the expense of the older brother it occurs to me that that all of us <laughs> jesus is the firstborn among many brothers so so don't get hung up on if you're female i mean we're we we all get to be brothers of Jesus, the younger brothers, and we get to benefit. We get to experience God's favor at the expense of our older brother. God continuing his master plan, working out a master plan of grace in each of our lives. Have you experienced that yet today? Have you experienced, I know, I know we can get hung up on what is he doing, what, what about he's hardening these people over here. You've heard the message and he's calling each of us to respond, what will you do with it? Don't, don't sacrifice your eternal destiny, worrying about what someone else's eternal destiny is. God, God will trust him to work in, in those other lives. But what will you do? with what he's called you to. Let's pray. Father, we confess that many times we don't understand in our our limited brains, we cannot understand an infinite God and your ways. And Lord, I confess for myself, and I'm I'm sure on behalf of probably everybody who's listening, that there are times where I look at what you're doing and I, I judge you. And I say, this, this doesn't seem unfair. I mean, this doesn't seem fair. I don't understand what you're doing. This doesn't make sense. It's inefficient. And yet, God, at the end of the day, may, may we humble ourselves before a mighty and awesome and wise God and trust your heart Trust you, Lord, when we feel like you're being unfair, may we look at the things you've done in our favor that are unfair. And may we approach you knowing that you love us, that Jesus, you are our older brother and that you sacrificed yourself so that we may become your, your brother and benefit from what you have given up. I pray for the person who's here this morning that has has never put their trust wholly in you. Maybe they've gotten hung up on some of the questions that we have wrestled with here today that Paul doesn't totally clear up for us. Or may they trust in your heart where they're not able to explain all of your, your actions. And may they be recipients of your grace, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.